0: The following message was given by Matt Mason at the 2017 Worship God Conference held in Louisville, Kentucky. This feels a bit like a family reunion for me because I, in some ways it's like, it's like I grew up at this conference. I've been attending this conference since 1999, so I've spent most of my adult life at this conference in ways, just coming here over and over, meeting new friends, having new experiences. I've got milestone memories from from the age of 24 all the way up until this morning uh, of God's grace and goodness to me here so it feels like family and it is an absolute joy uh, to be with you and to get to share God's Word with you so let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 12 Romans chapter 12 again as we looked last night event in every day is the tension that I've been assigned and that we're gonna be considering this morning when it comes to event, we're talking about the gathered worship of the people of God. And God, friends, is worshiped when we gather in His name. God delights in the praise of His people. He is worshiped when we gather. Um, so it's not less than event. It's not less than corporate gatherings. I mean, so often, think about the book of Psalms and how, how often there are these corporate imperatives that we say to each other, come, you, Let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Come, let us kneel before our Lord and our Maker, for He is our God. And we're inviting each other. The psalmist is inviting the people of God. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. And so God is worshiped as we gather in his name. Even in the New Testament, we have these, these commands time after time after time. For example, in Hebrews chapter 10, where we're told to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the coming day, the day of the Lord drawing near. And so we're called to not neglect to meet together, not neglect the corporate assembly of God's people growing up in the home of a a pastor, my dad planted a church in New Orleans before I was born, and so I grew up in that context. And Hebrews 10:25, "Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some," was a core verse in my fighter verses. And growing up in that house, we learned it right after John 3:16, and right before "God loves a cheerful giver." So that was kind of our our discipleship program in the household was Jesus loves you, John 3.16, don't skip church and put something in the offering plate. So all of that was in there, just the beginning f- foundational building blocks of, of young disciples <laughs> in the home of a pastor. And I delighted in the corporate gathering. Matter of fact, I would say to you that of all the graces of God, all the, the means of grace, where God tells us, as it were, in his word, I'll meet you there, Right? He says, I'll meet you when you pray. I'll meet you when you meditate on my word. I'll meet you in another means of grace, the gathering. And of all the means of grace, the first one through which I tasted the goodness of the Lord was the corporate gathering. I remember vividly as a young boy looking around, hearing the sounds of the singing of God's people learning alto sitting next to sister Melinda Taylor because she only sang alto and so I learned to sing alto just because I sat next to her on the second pew of our little church there in New Orleans and growing up around this and just seeing people radiant with joy in their God gathering around and laying their hands on one another to pray for those who were embattled from a hard week or difficult circumstances in their lives we know that that, that As it relates to Sunday gathering, Lord's Day worship, the Lord's schedule is is already set in advance. He's coming to church. He meets with his people. He delights in the praises of his gathered people. But as vital as the means of grace is in the gathering of God's people, it's not just an event. There's every day that worship lays its claim to the whole of our lives. Worship is meant to be everyday expressions of living. for the praise of God, a heart that delights in God, and this continuous outpouring of praise to the one in whom our hearts delight. And so, so when we, the change between event and all of life worship is simply a change in the direction of worship. It's not that we punch into worship when we gather with the people and we punch out when we leave. Worship just simply changes directions. We are ascribing glory to God when we gather in His name and praising Him for His excellent greatness and confessing our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And we are saying when we gather together, I hope in our churches all around this room, we are saying in different ways from Sunday to Sunday, we're saying the ten words that have stabilized the soul of the church of the ages. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again and we say that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and we never tire of saying that and then we leave the gathering and we worship our God in our homes and in our families and in our relationships and at the office and we worship God how by killing bitterness by growing in holiness by loving our wives as Christ loved the church. We're we responding to God with worship, by cultivating a life of prayer and dependence on God, by working diligently as unto the Lord and not as unto human masters, eating and drinking and whatever we do, doing all to the glory of God so that all of life is permeated by the desire for the believer to praise the Lord, to live for the praise of His glory. And so in this way, you just think about worship. Worship is is a rhythm of revelation and response. That's, that's not new. We've probably heard that before. It's a rhythm of revelation and response. So we see God through His self-revealing Word. He steps out of hiding. He introduces Himself to His covenant people through His covenant Word, and we respond to what we see with worship. Worship is the next thing that happens after we've seen the glory of God. It's a reflexive response of the heart that's been captured by the glory of God. And in that way, Romans is a book about worship, not just the Psalms. Romans is very much a book about worship, and Shai showed us that so powerfully last night as he walked through chapter after chapter, verse after verse of the the mercies, the countless mercies of God, page after page after page. And then as Paul moves through that display of the mercies of God, and then he arrives at the, the, the peak, sort of of, of, of Mount Everest in the New Testament vision of, of God's glory, having expounded the salvation project of God through the ages and redounding into eternity. And Paul stands there at the peak of Everest in Romans chapter 11 at the end, and he just explodes into doxology, puts the pen down and just, oh, the depths of the riches I'll be back in a second of you know of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments his ways past finding out who has known the mind of the lord who can understand this who can be his counselor for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory this this outburst of doxological praise right there at the end of Romans chapter 11, and then standing there, as it were, looking out over the the peaks of the revealed mercy of God and the plan of salvation in history, Paul then pivots on this word, therefore, in Romans chapter 12, and this is the landing gear. When when the apostle Paul uses the word therefore, the landing gear is coming down. He's about to take these massive truths and make sure they touch down into real life and into the real world. And that's what's happening here. Paul is bringing down the landing gear to say, in light of what we've seen, as we heard last night, in view of all these mercies, what happens next? If it's a rhythm of revelation and response, so we've seen it, now what happens next? How do we live for the praise of the glory of this God who has revealed himself in Christ? And his answer is worship. But this is a different kind of worship. This is is a pervasive, this is an intrusive worship. So follow along with me. We're going to read Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now we're still talking about worship. You see the first word. For, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Just pause. We're still talking about worship. He goes on. Let love be genuine. This is how we respond to the mercies of God. Genuine love abhorring what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing with good. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your self revealing word. Please show yourself to us. Step, as it were, off the page. Reveal yourself to us in a way that creates a reflexive response of worship creates hearts that adore you afresh lives that are lived to the glory of your name in every moment every day ordinary things everyday types of things everyday types of relationships get glory here in the gristle of life get glory here from your people by your grace help us This is, this text, gospel-powered worship. This is, this is a vision of worship in a way that worship, again, is, is utterly intrusive. Worship in Romans 12 doesn't just… It's not okay with just staying in your, your quiet times or the, the broom closet. It wants the house. It wants… Everything that we do, every experience that we have, everything that we eat and drink it wants all of it, all of our relationships, it it claims, lays claim to all of it. Look at those words again in verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, on and on from verse 9. Over the next 23 verses, or rather, over the next 11 verses, 23 verbs, 23 commands, beginning in verse 9. This passage lays claim to our words our actions, our relationships, not only our life together as a community of faith, as the people of God in local churches, but it lays claim to our life in a world marked by hostility against the gospel, persecution, pushback against the gospel and the the people of the gospel. And it's still calling us to surge forward for the glory of God. This call to worship demands death to self-vindication. That's here. This worship is expressed in peacemaking instincts, generosity, hospitality toward one another. In in, in other words, this is a call to holistic worship, the event, the gathering, but the everyday as well. And so I want us to consider this under three statements in light of this passage. The first is this, worship has everything to do with how we gather has everything to do with how we gather. So again, don't miss the link between verse 1 and 2 and verse 3 through 8. The word for in verse 3 keeps these ideas connected. Paul is saying, in no uncertain terms, you want to worship God? You want to live for the praise of God? You want to present your bodies as living sacrifices? You want to have your mind renewed? Let's start by not thinking so highly of ourselves. Let's start by finding a place in the local church. I mean, how every day is that? It's not just this this ethereal, gaseous, nebulous sacrifice of praise. It's people in your local church need you. And he's calling us into that kind of relationship. I love that. Paul doesn't just simply leave these spiritually fuzzy notions of what it means to be a living sacrifice. If it's detached from meaningful membership in an ordinary church with ordinary believers who aren't awesome, right? In other words, Paul wouldn't have to say, think of yourself more, not, not so highly, but embrace these others because you need them. He wouldn't need to say that if you were wanting to run around every Sunday and get autographs of the people around you. These are ordinary believers. And Paul says you need every one of them because we're members of this body together. And Paul then speaks of the use of spiritual gifts in gathered worship. He talks, just let those words leap right off the page. The teacher's teaching, right? Exhortation, giving and generosity, prophecy, leaders leading. Acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Church gatherings, the gathering of the believers on the Lord's Day, contrary to a flurry of books that came out at the turn of this century, church gatherings are not a take it or leave it option. God calls us. Here's the thing. God knows how to build a believer. (laughs) He knows how to build a believer. And if he says, I'll build you when you come and gather with my people on Sunday, we can trust he'll build us. When we come and gather with his very imperfect people, we ourselves, very imperfect, but he builds us there. Not only there, but there as well. The worship of the church, the nurture and fellowship of the church, friends, is not an enemy of mission. It is not an enemy of cultural engagement or presence in the city. We need to gather together. The most compelling generation of believers the world has ever seen didn't push worship and fellowship aside. Acts 2, 46, daily they met in the temple. Daily they met in homes. Daily they prayed together. In other words, to reach the world, they didn't need less Christian fellowship. They needed more. And I'm convinced that if we knew how vulnerable we are to spiritual attack, to the distracting and soul-numbing effects of busyness and materialism. This is the second-hand smoke that we're puffing that's all around us in our culture. If we knew how, how vulnerable we are, how not ready we are for persecution, should it come, suddenly we'd need the gathering. Like people in persecuted parts of the world do right now. Need the gathering. I had the opportunity a couple years ago to go to... Dubai, And there was a conference there that called people from places all over Central Asia, missionaries who work in some of the most dangerous places in the world. They don't have the luxury or, or joy of being able to gather and sing songs together with God's people in their heart language. It's just their one family in that town. And so you should have seen them. I had a keyboard right here and started singing, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. We were three words in. Practically everyone in the room was in tears. Remembering the joy of singing, hearing promises of God, singing our souls stable in the hope of the gospel. We need every Sunday, whether we feel it or not. And if we if we saw that, if we felt our vulnerability, we would, we would take every Sunday we could get our hands on, and we'd ask for a few more. Because we would love to gather with God's people, because there we hear the word of God preached. There we hear the word of God sung over our souls and our minds and it just washes over us. There we pray the Bible and we read the Bible. And there, as the Apostle Peter said, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. What did God do for the infant church in the book of Acts? At the end of the very first sermon in Acts chapter 2, they preach. 3,000 people come to faith, and receive the gospel. Those people, 3,000 of them, all go into the water to make a public profession of their faith in baptism. And what happens next? The very next verse, they're giving themselves, devoted to the apostles' doctrine. It's time to learn. They're still wet. It's time to learn. <laughs> it's time to get grounded, as we heard last night, rooted in our faith. You just came to faith. Now let's learn better. Who is Jesus? What are the claims of the gospel? What's the call of God on our lives? We need the apostles' doctrine. We need the fellowship. We need the breaking of bread. We need the prayers. They're hungry for truth. They desire that earnestly. Acts 2 follows a clear pattern of the Great Commission. Where Jesus, he he says, go, make disciples, baptize them. Right, so 3,000 disciples. What do you do next? What did Jesus say? Baptize them. What do we do next? What did Jesus say? Teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. They're just doing what Jesus told them in the Great Commission. What does it mean to to devote ourselves here and now, having the completed canon at this point, which they didn't have when they were devoting themselves to the Apostles' Doctrine in Acts 2. The canon wasn't completely finished at that point. They were still working it out. Apostle Paul wasn't even saved yet, right? But once he comes to faith and we get the completed canon of the Apostles' Doctrine, what does it mean for us in our own local churches, ordinary churches, for us to devote ourselves to the Apostles' Doctrine? It means having these truths pouring over us Sunday after Sunday, truths from in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, to there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus to... All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations to, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. To children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. To put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. To religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this to visit orphans and widows and their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world, to see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, to, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is the apostles' doctrine. This is what the church is strengthened by for the past 2,000 years. These, These scriptures, these are our marching orders. These are our letters from home. This is truth in a world whirling in confusion. This is hope in the throes of depression. This is an anchor for the soul. These are promises that keep and guard us and grant us peace. These are words that help us love Christ more fervently. This is what we need. We need gatherings. We need to be devoted to these things. Friends, Romans 12 issues a call to worship, and that call includes not only the everyday demonstrations of what it means to live life as the people of God, but it speaks to the event of gathered worship. Romans 12 tells me that brothers and sisters in my local church are part of God's design for me to become more like Jesus. Brothers and sisters in my local church are part of God's design to make sure I make it home, to make sure I persevere to the end. It's what it means to look around at each other and say, don't fall back. We all move together in the hope of the gospel. To neglect to prioritize the gathering of God's people is to think too highly of myself. That's a concrete expression of thinking too highly of myself is not showing up when it's time to worship with God's people. I, I love this, this quote from Ed Welch in his book Side by Side. He said, anything that reminds us that we are dependent on God and other people is a good thing. <laughs> Otherwise, we trick ourselves into thinking that we are self-sufficient and arrogance is sure to follow. Now, that's what Paul is militating against here. A life of worship that begins by admitting, I'm not all that. I need the grace of God and I need the help of others need the help of the local church and so we lean into that so worship has everything to do with how we gather second worship has everything to do with how we treat one another how we treat one another again verse nine let love be genuine see how relational this is abhor what is evil hold fast to what is good love one another with brotherly affection outdo one another in showing honor do not be slothful in zeal be fervent in spirit serve the lord rejoice in hope be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So we are called in this text, which is about worship, to love one another with supernatural energy, empowered by God's spirit, and to love each other with family-like affection. There's affection language in this, this text. And look at what, what it looks like here. He uses the word, let love be genuine. This isn't, this isn't a... You know, some live and let live tolerance. No, there's, there's an interest. There's a genuine concern. This is love. When he says, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This is love with a working moral compass. It knows which way is up. It knows what it means to please a God who is holy. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Live with integrity before our God. This is love. What does that mean? This is love that fights so that we keep believing. And we keep following Jesus and we don't buy the lies of the enemy. We don't get duped by sin and self-deception. There's affection in verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. There's a new kind of speech that's offered to the community of faith. Outdo one another in showing honor. How's that going in your church? How's that going in, in your worship ministry? Outdo one another in showing honor. That is an expression of worship. We should affirm and honor one another with an exuberance that grabs the attention of a watching world. We ought to sound like we're speaking with a foreign accent in this world, in this world filled with crass language and put-downs and sarcasm. there There ought to be a language among the people of God in the local church that is buoyant with hope, that is quick to bestow honor, quick to encourage, and just affirm the daylights out of people all around us. That should be our desire. Look at descriptions in verse 11. There's there's zeal here. It's all in. This is a love for people that's all in. It's not slothful. This is an up and moving kind of love. It's not just sitting back and waiting for somebody to come to me. It's moving out towards people. These expressions of love are the way we serve the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Serve the Lord and yet almost everything around that verse is about how we treat one another. This is how we serve the Lord. Verse 12, this love rejoices with hope. You see that? It's patient in tribulation, it is prayerful. There's hope ought to be right at the heart of our experience as believers in the local church. Hope, friends, I love what we were singing earlier. It so connects to what we're thinking about here. Hope is a powerful thing, hope is an awesome thing. And this world is hope starved. That's why in the New Testament speaks of those who are outside of Christ as without God and without what hope. And then he adds the phrase, "In this world, it's one thing to be without God, it's, and it's another thing to be without hope, and it's an, it's another thing to be without both of them in this world. Without hope in this world, the book of Ecclesiastes, you read it, it's it's a tragedy, and the book of Ecclesiastes is the diary of the world." Reaching for hope outside of God. And and just when they get their hands around something that seems like it's gonna answer it, it's vanity. And it slips right through their fingers and it's grasping for the wind. And you can never get it. And that's why Augustine said our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. But hope, friends, in the church of Jesus Christ, hope is our fastball. There is no ideology or religion on earth that can rival Christianity in the hope department. This is what we do. This is our message. We have hope. This world can't get to. You can't do an end run around Jesus and get to hope. It only comes, it's mediated hope. It comes in Jesus, wrapped in Jesus. He comes clothed in that way to a needy world. Verse 13, this love, this love comes out of pocket. This love is generous. It contributes to the needs of the saints. It's looking around. What do you need? What do I have that can supply what you need? This love welcomes. It's it's hospitable. It's inviting people into its homes. This worship wants your wallet, this worship wants your living room. It wants you to live for the glory of God in ways that relate to other people and affect their whole view and perspective on life. Generosity, hospitality. It's the kind of love that's unwilling for any member of the church to feel alone or invisible. You, th- you ever think about that? I walk into our room, our worship room on Sunday, and look around. And I'm looking at people. I might not know which ones they are. Some of them think they're invisible. They might be sitting there just thinking, do you see through me? How come no one, no one greeted me on my way in? They feel invisible. You know what? Love in our hearts and responding to the grace of God and the mercy that we've known in the gospel finds those people, looks for those people, makes them appear, makes them solid, makes them show up affirms, welcomes them. But Paul loves to greet believers, doesn't he? I say he's not just glad-handing at the end of his epistles that he's writing. He loves people. He's always taking you know, selfies outside of town. You know, they're on the run, he and Paul and Demas and whoever, Barnabas. He's always got people with him, fugitives on the run, gospel delinquents. And he just runs with these guys. And, and at the end of Romans, he just stacks this huge list of no names. You never hear their names anywhere else. And Phlegon, you know? I mean, who knows who Phlegon is? Rufus, Rufus's mom? He literally says Rufus and Rufus's mom. And he said, Who's like a mother to me? Well, what did Rufus's mom do to make Paul think she's like my mom? You know, was she like, hey, Paul, I know you're coming to town. You are coming to my house. I'm making your favorite soup. I'm making your favorite cookies. Uh, you haven't rested a lot. You look like you've got baggage on your eyes. How did she talk to him? Was she, like, was she like, did she tussle his apostolic hair when she walked by? I mean, what, <laughs> what was it that she did? Whatever it was, the apostle said, she's like a mom. He doesn't even name her. Rufus' mom is like my mom. <laughs> there was hospitality apparently at work. In Rufus's mom, that must have been one of her spiritual gifts. She treated Paul like a son. Hospitality, friends, is all over the pages of the New Testament. The early church, this is this one of the main things they did. They opened their homes to one another. They assumed that there were traveling bands of, of apostles or those who were teaching or, or evangelists moving through the area. They just assumed they'll stay with you. They'll stay with you. So they're coming to your town. You live there. They're coming. They're believers. They'll stay with you, Right? It's an assumption. (laughs) Hospitality is something they did on a regular basis. They spread the table with food. In Acts chapter 2, they ate and drank with glad hearts. From the very beginning, when God transformed their hearts, the table was open. The house, the front door was open. The keys under the mat. Come inside. Let's live life together. Love this thought from William Smith, his book, Loving Well, even if you haven't been. The Bible is not a magical book of formulas and instructions for having otherworldly mystical experiences. God is concerned for real, raw, physical life. So He makes sure you understand how vitally important it is to greet one another. Keep digging, and you learn that greeting others is an important spiritual activity because it reflects how our God interacts with His people. I have so many memories of times like this as a child, growing up in in the house of a pastor. and My dad and my mom loved having people in our homes. We must have had over the years hundreds of different people from our church or visiting missionaries or ministers traveling through town. And I remember being in my bed and there was a guy who who was an author of like three books who was in the next room. We moved Lori out of the room and she slept sort of in the front so he could have the, the extra room. And I remember thinking through this wall is a missionary who's translating the Bible in India. And I got to sit with him at the dinner table last night just thinking, this is awesome! Loving God's people, watching my parents do that, inviting people over. There was a man who used to come over to our house with some regularity. I was really young. His name was Brother Dave, and he was blind from birth. And so uh, when when he ate, and he was extremely poor, uh, and when he ate, he had he had no table manners. I just remember this looking through the eyes of a child. So I was immature, and um, and so we're sitting at the table. He's sitting just to my right, and he's he's feeling the food, and it was it was corn, and so he's just got the corn all over his fingers, and there's butter all over his fingers, and he's putting it in his mouth, and so and then there's butter all over his mouth, and my dad so loved Brother Dave. And so my dad was just really gregarious and outgoing, and so whatever it was about dad's humor, it hit brother Dave just in the right spot. And so brother Dave would just throw his head back, mouth open, and there's all that corn again, and there's all that all that butter is just right there, right? And and I saw it, and I was losing my appetite as a young kid, right? That's just the reality of it. But as I got older and I looked back at that, I realized I was seeing. The gospel displayed right there at the table you think about how God found us he he didn't ask us to go bathe in hand sanitizer before he saved us through Jesus he came to us butter all over our faces didn't have our act together all over our fingers we were a royal mess and Jesus said welcome home come you weary, heavy laden, you dirty, come, come. I love Romans 15 because it talks about how we welcome one another in the church and it relates it to the gospel. Welcome one another as God has welcomed you, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That is, our welcome, I say this down there in, in Birmingham, Alabama, our hospitality shouldn't just be southern. It should be a taste of heaven. Our welcome should should feel like the welcome of God. It should be wide-armed. It should be exuberant. It should be effusive welcome. (laughs) May the God of endurance, Paul writes, and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the god and father of our lord jesus christ and then he says therefore welcome one another as christ has welcomed you for the glory of god it is a wide-armed beaming with gusto welcome that should be experienced in the church do do we greet one another as members of the body of Christ, whether we're in the gathering or outside, do we greet one another in ways that imitate the welcome of Christ in the gospel? Is there this Christ-like effervescence, this Christ-like joy and enthusiasm? Ed Clowney wrote these words: Christians in community must again show the world not merely family values, but the bond of the love of Christ. Increasingly, the ordered fellowship of the church becomes the sign of grace for the warring factions of a disordered world. Only as the church binds together those whom selfishness and hate have cut apart will its message be heard and its ministry of hope to the friendless be received. Paul says this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And in that way, I think Romans chapter 12, verse 3 through 13, is a practical corporate application with imperatives attached to the call to humility in Philippians chapter 2. This is What, is it, what does it look like to flesh it out? What does it look like as we live together as God's people? So worship has everything to do, number one, with how we gather, everything to do with how we treat each other, and third, worship has everything to do with how we face opposition. Verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. This is still about worship, by the way. This is still what it means to to be living sacrifices. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That's hard, isn't it? That feels living sacrifice doesn't it? Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Who can pull that off? That's why the first thing I said after we read the text is, this is gospel-powered worship. Who can pull that off? He's not just saying, tolerate your enemy. Don't shun him. He's saying, Feed him. He's thirsty, give him water. Only the gospel can power this. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, even as those who know Christ, the natural habit of our hearts, so often is vengeance, not mercy. Isn't that true? That's what comes naturally to us they hit you hit back that's it's what you do and if you know they're going to hit you hit first now, that's the world that we live in that is not the way of christ that is not the way of christianity part of paul's program for gospel powered worship in everyday life is he under divine inspiration wants to retrain our hearts toward habits of mercy habits of compassion instincts of mercy where we are ready and eager to oversee and overlook slights and insults to forbear that to extend forgiveness as forgiven people that's the instincts of a heart that's been captured by the gospel that's what it means for us to for the gospel to get into our bloodstream. It's the kind of people it's meant to create where we're more eager to reconcile if at all possible he says if possible live peaceably with all so far as it depends on you so it takes two to reconcile right but from your side, you're ready. From my side, I am ready. I will be there with bells on. I can't wait to reconcile. I can't wait for this to be right. Look, worship is not some flighty, gaseous thing in Romans chapter 12. It is hard. It is concrete. It is rugged. It is in the, in the mix of life. Worship in the broader context of the Scripture says stuff like this. Mark eleven twenty-five. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you've received. If only he had stopped there. We could have left worship in the nebulous realm. But when you ask the question back to the text and say, well, Paul, what do you mean walk in a manner worthy of the calling? He says, well, let's talk about our everyday relationships. Why don't we start with the church? (laughs) Let's talk about friction and disunity in the church, Ephesians chapter 4. Let's talk about your house. Let's talk about your marriage, chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. In other words, if I speak harshly to my children, harshly to my wife, there's a problem in my relationship with God. That matters. That's an expression of, that is a worship issue. Worship isn't less than an event because God calls us to draw near to him together and confess our hope without wavering, but it is so much more than an event. To worship God rightly, friends, is to bring all of life under the word of God. Even our relationships, even the hard things, even the pushback of the world is calling us to gospel-powered worship. So let me just leave you with three very brief encouragements for your worship ministry. Three. Number one prioritize holiness. Again, that's where the text begins. I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable or pleasing to God. Is it clear that as worship leaders, as members of our worship teams in our churches, we want Sunday to be an overflow of what's been happening by God's grace all week long, so that in one sense we might even say that we don't gather to worship, but we gather as worshipers. There's this continual, we want to live, as the Puritan said, "Corum deo, we want to live all of life before the face of God. And Spurgeon called out this, this problem of the, the two-sided life. When he says, do you roll sin on your tongue all week long and then come to worship and think to worship him? He said, worship him with sin indulged in your life? He's calling for not contrast, but symmetry. That there's a commensurate relationship between the way that we live our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit and what we do when we gather together. So prioritize holiness on our teams. Second, build a culture of affirmation, outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in making room for other people to express their gifts, making room for others' gifts to shine. That is an act of worship. And three, pursue meaningful friendships as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an act of worship. Pursue genuine, meaningful friendships. Ed Welch again, he says, along the way, we will find that God is pleased to use ordinary people, ordinary conversations, and extraordinary and wise love to do most of the heavy lifting in his kingdom. How real is that? Ordinary people, ordinary conversations, lifting heavy things, heavy burdens, bringing heavy grace down on God's people. We need this. Friend, there is no adversarial relationship between the event of worship and the everyday of worship. The gathering of worship and all of life worship, by God's grace, they can be mutually reinforcing. They can strengthen one another so that over time our gatherings centered around the gospel freshly motivate us to do these kinds of things for the gospel to spill over into everything so that we live for the praise of his glory in all things. The apostle Paul must believe under divine inspiration that seeing the mercies of God in Christ actually changes us. It it has a transformative effect on how we live that when the gospel gets into our bloodstream, it leaves its mark on who we are. It leaves its mark on what we do and look like when we gather. It leaves its mark on everyday relationships we have with one another. It leaves its mark on how we live on mission to see the gospel advancing around the world, even in the face of hostility and persecution. As Paul talks about there at the end of the chapter, friends, our God is able... Our God is sovereign. This is the gospel of the first 11 chapters of Romans that's meant to propel us into this kind of life. He is sovereign. He is able. He is with us. He is faithful. He is coming back. And may this glorious gospel of our triune God, friends, propel us to live lives of worship in all things for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you for your word. And we own it right here. We, we need help. We need strength. We are not up to this in our own strength or the power of our own resolve. Lord, we don't want to bootstrap ourselves into doing these things. We're, we're asking for grace now. May your word bear fruit in us now may it bear fruit in us in coming days we want to worship you in spirit and in truth we want to reflect your character to the world we want our relationships to demonstrate Jesus is real we want our relationships to demonstrate the gospel has captured our hearts we're asking for these graces to shine in more and more ways all for the glory of your name thank you for patiently working in us Now, as the Apostle Paul said, you have shown yourself, Jesus, to be perfectly patient. Thank you for your patience in us as you work in us, both to will and to do of your good pleasure. We pray, receive praise from our lives, O God. You've been listening to a message by Matt Mason given at the 2017 Worship God Conference held in Louisville, Kentucky. For more information on the conference, visit worshipgodconference.org.